Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a youth pastor in Denver, we uh, used to do things called firsties. <laughs> we called it firstie if it was the first time it had ever happened. Um, and so my most remarkable firstie happened on the golf course. Um, it was amazing. I could have never done it again if I tried. In fact, I did try. Um, and we were out golfing, and uh, I had my driver out. And by the way, I've only golfed one time since I moved to Ray, so that'll tell you a little bit about my golf game. I had my driver out, and I took the club back, and I brought it forward to hit the ball. And the amazing thing I did, the first time this has ever happened in the history of the world, first time and probably the only time, I hit the ball. It was supposed to go that way. It went straight that direction. <laughs> and the interesting thing with this tee uh, box was that right in front of, or right at the, the end of the tee box on that side was a railing. My ball hit one of the railings, landed behind me. You go do that on a golf course. <laughs> hit the ball behind you. I mean, that was fascinating. It was a firsty. Remarkable firsty, I know. I mean, impressive, clearly. I took a mulligan on that shot and about 20 others that day. And there's all sorts of firsties in the world. Um, I've wanted to do a firsty in Ray for years. Uh, after a rock concert, I wanted to be the first guy to say, Good night, Ray. We love you. You know, like how rock stars do. Um, if you're not a rock fan, you don't get that. But that's okay. I wanted to be the guy who did that for the first time in Ray, Colorado. And in this passage of scripture we're going to look at today, there are some firsties. There are some big firsties. In fact, there's such big firsties, we don't even pay attention to the firsties because we're so used to these that we don't even think of them as firsties. We think, well, those words have always been around. Those concepts have always existed. And in this passage of Scripture, we find some firsties, some biggies. And we've been looking at the most interesting man in the world, and not the guy from the Corona commercials or the Dos Equis commercials. We've been looking at Abraham, Father Abraham. And Father Abraham, if you're new to church world, your life has been influenced by Abraham in ways you probably aren't even aware of. Abraham was a man that lived probably 3,000 years ago. And you think, wow, big deal. But from Abraham, 60% of the world's population finds their religious roots. 60 to 70%. Because from Abraham came the religions... Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. From Abraham, those three major religious groups trace back their roots to him. And his story is told in the book of Genesis. And it's told uh, after the first 11 chapters. And 11 chapters uh, is kind of a, a fast-forward sequence 
And I'm going to make it even faster because basically God creates and he says it is good. And then in chapters two and three, we find out that God has a plan for our lives, but none of us are living it. And we have this self-destructive nature inside of us. It's called the sin nature. And God is so frustrated with, Christ, with, with the world that he sends a flood to destroy it and destroy all of life and all the people. And we think of Noah and the Tower of Babel. People decide to make a name for themselves. And God is just frustrated with how people are behaving and living. And so he shows up and he talks to this guy named Abram in chapter 11. And Abram, there is nothing good in this guy. He's just an average Joe. He's just a regular guy. He's an idol worshiper from Ur of the Chaldees. He's got no merit. There's no reason why God would go, wow, look at that guy. I should pick him. In fact, there's a lot of reasons that God should have gone, please. But he picks Abram. And he says to him, and, and this was the content of what he said to him. Go to the land I will show you. And I will bless those who bless you and I curse those who curse you. <laughs> Anything else? It's a lot of info to go on there. I like the blessed part. I like the curse part. Go to the land I'll show you. There's another little part in there that I left out. Leave your family. Leave the land you know. Leave the home you know. And Abram left. He left except he brought nephew Lot. And Lot was his brother's son. His brother had died early on in life. And so he had this special connection to nephew Lot. And so instead of leaving everybody like God told him to, he brought Lot along. And that's who plays a role in this story we're going to read about today. You see, Abram and Lot, they finally got to the land that they were supposed to be at. And God showed them and God told you, hey, this is the land I'm going to give you. And it's it stretches from here to here, everywhere you wander, everywhere you walk, everywhere you look. This is the land I'm going to give you. And there was a famine in that land. And last week we looked at how the famine led Abram to be afraid. And that fear drove him away from the land God was going to give him. And he went to Egypt. And he played this little game against Pharaoh where he had his wife lie that he, she was his sister. And he left Egypt with uh, more than what he showed up in in Egypt. But there were some questions surrounding his wife Sarai and, and if she was truly pure or not because she had been taken into Pharaoh's harem. And so this action delayed God's promise in Abram's life. I mean... One of his promises, he was 75 years old, and the promise was, I will give you a son. I will make a great nation come out of you and out of your wife. And now it's delayed because, well, it could be Pharaoh's kid. And so we got to at least wait nine, ten months or so, right? There can't be any doubt that this is Abram's kid. And then in chapter 13, we're not going to look at that chapter. We're just going to fast forward through it. Chapter 13, Lot and Abram are so wealthy that the land can't support them. <laughs> Anybody have those problems? I mean, we have drought, which can't causes the grass not to grow, which then we have a hard time having the land support our livestock, the land support our livelihoods. 
But that's not the problem here. Famine's done. It's over with. There's plenty. But there's not plenty because there's too much plenty. They have too much. And Abram and Lot decide we got to go our separate ways. And so Abram does something remarkable. He defers first choice to Lot. That's not how I work. It's not how it works at my house. It's not how kids usually work, right? If you're a parent, you know how that works. I'm first, shotgun, blah, 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 whatever, right? Everything's about them being first. Everything in our life is usually about us being first. Abram says, Lot, you pick first. Guess what Lot picks? What would you pick? Come on. The best, right? The prettiest. The nicest. That's what Lot picks. He picks the... The, 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 the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are. He picks this beautiful, lush valley. He says, I'm going to go over there. And Abram says, all right, I'll head for the hills. So they split their ways. And in chapter, in Genesis 13, 12, we read that Lot is living near Sodom. We read that Lot is living near Sodom. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Because if you know anything about Bible stuff, when you hear the city Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of? <laughs> Destruction. We get a term, not a pretty term, not a term you hear in sermons very often, from Sodom, don't we? And the reason that we have that term is because of a story we'll read in a little bit. Not today, thank God, because I'm still trying to figure out how to preach that one. (laughs) The term sodomy comes from Sodom. And Sodom is a horrible, disgusting, sinful place. Lots living near Sodom. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency... To be like Abram sometimes, where I like to keep my sin near me. (laughs) He should have left Lot behind, but he brings Lot with him. First mistake. And then Lot starts making some mistakes. He picks the land, the best land, but he decides to live near Sodom. We're going to see in a moment in this story where he's living next. Now, chapter 14 begins with a firsty, the first war in the Bible. Probably the first war in recorded human history. And we're pretty good at war nowadays, aren't we? We can even do surgical strikes. No boots are even on the ground. (laughs) It's one thing that humans do really, really well. Fight and kill one another. And it started early on. And so if you look at verse chapter 14, beginning in verse one, at the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Ilasar, Ketaloyomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Barah, king of Sodom, Brisha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimaber, king of Zeboim. Why are we reading this, right? If you are leading a Bible study, just read those with a lot of confidence, like you know what you're talking about. An easier way to read it would be just 
A was king of S, A king of E, K king of E, T king of G. I mean, because that's really what you're hearing, isn't it? Because it's like, huh? Who are these guys? And really what you need to know is that there are five kings against four kings. Five kings are going against four kings. And these latter kings join forces in the Valley of Siddam. That is the Dead Sea Valley. So this is down by the Dead Sea in Israel. For 12 years, they had been subject to Ketileomer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. So one thing that's kind of interesting, if you like to highlight your Bible or circle things, uh, Shinar, well, that's Iraq. And Elam, that's Iran. <laughs> Funny that those two countries would be in the first war ever, right? <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, in the 14th year, Ketileomer, or K, and the kings allied with him, went out and defeated the Raphaites in Ashtaroth, uh, K, uh, the Z's in H, the E's in S, uh, K, and the H's in the hill country of S, as far as E, P, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to E, and they conquered the whole territory of the A's, as well as the A's who were living in H, T. All right, now we got through that. And you're just riveted. <laughs> and this is, this is the part when you go the 14th day of the new year, January 14th. And you've been reading and you're doing really well. And you get to that and you're like, oh my gosh, this is why. This is why I stop. <laughs> now it's not long, so you keep going on. Right? But it's this kind of stuff that people go, the Bible's so boring. The Bible's so out of touch. What on earth is this trying to tell me? Oh, I don't know. Let's pray and go home. Then the king of Sodom, the king of G, the king of A, the king of Z, and the king of B, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddam against K, king of E, T, king of G, A, king of S, A, king of E, four kings against five. That's all you need to know. Four kings against five. Okay, I don't know why they include the names, probably to make you go, oh, these are real people. This really happened. Four kings against five kings. And there's a trade route in dispute. And these kings, you got to think of this as kind of like uh, go back to your medieval history days where you had feudal lords and city states in the Greek times as well. And these are like city states. Sodom had a king, Gomorrah had a king. And these kings ally with each other to, to keep their trade routes open, to keep, keep things open. And so the kings around Sodom and Gomorrah decide to rebel against the kings of Iran and Iraq. And the kings of Iran and Iraq say, no way, man. We're going to keep that trade route open. Forget it. The alliance is still valid. No, it's not. Okay, then we're coming in. So, four against five. That's where we're at. And we're wondering, why is this thrown into the story of Abram? And we read. Now, the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them. And the rest 
fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot. Oh, that's why this is in here. And Lot's possessions, since he was living in Sodom. Now, first he was near Sodom. Now, maybe if you like to circle and highlight things, you can circle highlight in Sodom. Lot is now in Sodom. And he's incompetent. He can't even defend his own family. He probably is not a member of the NRA. His family, his possessions, himself, all gets carried off as booty in this war. Well, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. There's another firsty right there. The word Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew appears in the Bible. And we're so used to seeing that word that we probably don't go, wow, that's the first time we've seen it. It took 14 chapters to get that word into the Bible. And here, Abram has a name for himself. He has a nationality for himself. He is no longer a Chaldean. He is now a Hebrew. He has changed his identity. And scholars debate, and there's all sorts of really interesting articles you can read about that. And it's really fascinating reading. And they, re- they wonder and they wrestle with where did this term come from? What does Hebrew means? And some people think, well, uh, Eber was his dad's name. So this is Eber, son of Eber, Hebrew. Who knows? I don't know where it came from, but now Abram has an identity. And all of us. When we come to Christ, we have a new identity. And one of the issues that we're going to read about in this passage is, is there something different about Abram? Is he living his life in such a way that it draws people to him? Is he living his life in such a way that people notice? So this guy comes running up to Abram. He escaped. Right? He escaped and he says, they've taken Lottie. They've taken Lot, his wife, his kids, his possessions. They've got your nephew. It's not in there, isn't it? I mean, it's in there that way, but it's not in there like. (gasps) It's another reason why we read the Bible and go, I don't get it. I don't understand because we don't engage our imagination. This is a war. Guys, you should really enjoy reading this book. Anyways, that's an aside. I get really excited about the Bible. So Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied, allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, this is where the most interesting man in the world gets more interesting. Do you know how many trained men I have in my household? The clan of Wankoop has like two and a half, give or take. If you count shooting as being trained, we go out and we shoot stuff. 
you know, pop bottles and, or not bottles, but pop cans, thank you. <laughs> and we try to shoot doves. We have yet to, you know, take on an army. Abram has 318 trained men in his clan. <laughs> That's cool, right? Anybody got 318 trained men? I mean, these are trained men. These are the guys who've got the swords, who've got the shields, who've got the training and know what to do with it. Trained men ready for battle. He takes these guys and they pursue the kings of Iran and Iraq as far as Dan, heading north. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. <laughs> yeah. Abram's a bad dude. He's probably in his 80s when this story takes place. <laughs> That's even cooler, right? I mean, we don't see some guy, hey, come back here, right? I mean, this is, this is Abram, and he's on his horse, and he's got his 318 trained men. And not only that, did you catch what else is going on? He is allied with three other dudes, and he takes all those men, and he pursues these kings. Now, I got to tell you something. The odds of him winning this battle are really, really low. He doesn't have the guys. He doesn't have the armies that city-states would have. He's just Abram hanging out. But he's got a promise from God. And his promise from God is, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And his promise is, Lottie's my guy. I got to go get Lottie. I want to bless Lot. And so those who took him, I'm going to curse. And by the way, he never prays in this story. He never says, and God showed up and, you know. And if I'm Abram, I'm thinking he's going to pull like a, a Moses or a Jesus and he's going to walk into the, to the camp, you know, of these big armies. And he's going to walk in with like a staff and by himself and he's just going to walk in and, hey, who are you? I'm Abram, the Hebrew, you know, because God's on his side, right? That's probably, I'd, I'd be dumb enough to try that. But look how he uses strategy. Look how he uses the resources that are available to him. And I'm sick and tired of Christians who say, you know, I'm just going to sit and pray and trust God to show me. You know, sometimes he's already shown you. He's given you resources. He gave you gray matter between your ears. He has given you people around you. He has given you intellect and education and resources. And I'm sick of Christians and, and who say, you know, to follow God, you just got to check your brain at the door. It's like a blind leap of faith. My faith in Christ is not a blind leap. I follow Jesus because of the historical reliability of the Gospels, because of all the things in literature and scripture that tell me that Jesus Christ really, truly did rise from the dead. It's not a blind leap. I follow Jesus because I use my brain. Not because I've checked it at the door. 
And if you are investigating the claims of Christ, use your mind, use your brain, use your intellect, use your education, read, look into it. Don't, don't just go, well, that's just stupid. Look in the mirror. That was mean. But Abram's a bad dude and I'm feeling a little, yeah. Abram uses strategy. And God wants us to use the resources he's given us. He wants us to use our abilities. Here's a little thing you can take home with you. Use your brain, do your best, and accept what happens. That's what Abram does. He uses his brain, he does his best, and he accepts what happens. He goes and he rescues Lot. He is given this great, miraculous victory over these kings. Now Abram is going to struggle with one of the most daunting foes that all humans struggle with. You won't see it unless you use your imagination. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Did you catch what he's struggling with there? <laughs> You're riding back. You've got in tow all the women and the goods of these incompetent kings who got themselves beaten up a little bit. And you're riding back and you're in the valley of the kings. And the king comes out to meet you. And my guess is, it's not in the Bible, but I think it's a good guess that when the king came out, all the people came out. And this is the first ticker tape parade after a victory. (laughs) You know what happens to me when I have that kind of success? (laughs) Right? Double wide door to get through. I mean, men, come on, right? You just whipped up on Iran and Iraq with 318 men. I mean, you just destroyed them. You are coming back with the goods. You're the man. Or in Hebrew, ata haish. Which none of you care about that, but. You're riding back and you are the man and the king comes out to see you. I mean, come on. Success. Power. Victory. Abram is so full of himself right now. He's the baddest dude in the land. And he's in his 80s. He's a bad dude. Then something really, really weird happens. And most of my sermon prep this whole week had to do with this dude here. And I still don't know what to say. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed Abram. What? King of Salem? Melchizedek? Where's Salem? 
Well, most Bible scholars think that this might have been Jerusalem. But Salem is really close to the, king, to the Hebrew shalom, which means peace. So some think this is the king of peace. And Melchizedek is a really interesting word because it is built out of two Hebrews words, Melech, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. This is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Huh? And to further cook your brain, he is also called priest of the most high God. And we know from 2 Chronicles 26, right? You all know that, that you can't be both king and priest. Who is this dude? I thought it was only Abram that knew about God most high. And by the way, God, Abraham has never called him God most high. This is a new term for Abram. Who is this? How does he just pop into the story? What is going on? Some scholars think this is a theophany, 50 cent word for Jesus showing up before he was born in Bethlehem. I don't know if that's true or not. I tend to think no. I think it's a type of Christ. I don't think it is an appearance of Jesus. The reason I think that is when you turn to Hebrews 7. And Hebrews 7 is at the back of the Bible. And uh, you read in Hebrews 7 more about this guy, Melchizedek. And Sam, if you'd hit that. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. See how I got that information? I just kept reading the book. You were like, wow, how does he know that? Just read the thing. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, resembling. See that word? That's why I'm kind of going, I don't know if it's a theophany. Because if it was theophany, they probably wouldn't have said resembling. Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Now, this is really weird. It's almost like Michael J. Fox stepping out of the DeLorean at this part of the story because there is no priest yet. There's never been a priest mentioned. This is the first D. This is the first time the word priest is used in the Bible. In fact, we're eight generations away from a priest. Because Abram fathers Isaac, and Isaac fathers Jacob, and Jacob has 13 boys, you, you get rid of Joseph, and then you have 12 tribes, and one of his sons is called Levi, and out of the tribe of Levi comes the priest, and Levi has a kid, his name is Aaron, and Aaron, out of those guys, comes the high priest, and Aaron has a son, and then a grandson, and then a great-grandson. This one's actually Aaron. That's Levi. Aaron, the great-grandson of Levi, those are the high priests. The only ones that can enter the temple. By the way, if you have time this afternoon, go to McCook. Go see the tabernacle. Last day. You can enter the Holy of Holies, which only Aaron and his lineage could have entered. But we're at least eight generations away from the priesthood. Who is this Melchizedek? He's a king. He's a priest. He knows God most high. And it's almost like he shows up in this story right when Abram is most tempted with success. And he gives a little reminder. You ever been tempted with success? You ever been tempted to think, man, I'm awesome. Oh, that was good. Wow, look at me. 
ah, I can't believe I swooped in there and I got that thing done and I made all this money and I made this happen and look at that and look at her. She loves me and look at that. And rah, woo. It's like Melchizedek comes swooping in. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered. Who? 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 Who delivered? God most high delivered your enemies into your hand. When you have successes, it's not because you're so bright and brilliant and amazing. Because God gave you a brain that makes you so bright and brilliant and amazing. You don't have amazing success and amazing opportunities. If you had been born elsewhere, outside of the Disneyland of human history, you'd probably not be making it near as well as you are. You have very little to do with your success. You have some. Use your brain. Do your best. Accept what happens. You have some. But it's ultimately God behind your successes. And it's like Melchizedek comes riding in when Abram is riding in. And Abram's big stuff because he defeated and he's got all this goods. And Melchizedek, guess what? He's bigger stuff. Because this is king of peace, king of righteousness. And he blesses Abram. Abram's been blessed one other time is by God. And look what Abraham does. <laughs> he doesn't even say anything. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's a firsty. First time we see tithe or tenth in the scriptures. And he wasn't commanded to do it. He wasn't told by some guilting preacher, what you need to do is give me, you know, it's nothing like that. It was just, I've had amazing success and I want to keep my head from. And it's like Abraham instinctively knows that the best way to fight that is to give some back. The best way to fight that is to go, you know what? He's right. It's God's. Not mine. Here's a tenth. I'll keep 90. That's a good deal, right? That's a really good deal. Because if I was God, it'd probably be more like, you know, 60, 40 for y'all. If you were God, it might be more like 70, 30. I mean, let's be honest, right? But God, who's the only one that counts, 10 for him, 90 for you. That's a good deal. And Abram goes, you know what? This is the best way to fight the success is to recognize where it came from by giving some of it back. And gifts. And it's almost like it was written on his heart. And some of you folks, you don't know Christ yet and you feel drawn to him and you're not sure what's going on. And you're even generous sometimes. And that generosity is what Paul, the apostle, talks about the, the law of God being written on your heart already. Because we just know that when we're blessed, we need to turn and bless others. We, we know this. So Abraham blesses Melchizedek. <laughs> then the king of Sodom said to Abram, the first dude to speak after this whole thing, you know, and Melchizedek, he's gone. We don't see the guy anymore ever again in scripture. He rides off into the sunset and then we read about him in Hebrews. <laughs> hey, uh, 
you just gave away my golf clubs and my flat screen TV. I mean, this is what's going on here. You don't see that in there because it's in Hebrew and it's a little boring. But he says, whoa, (laughs) I better speak up before the dude gives away more than 10% here. Give me the people and you keep the stuff for yourself. At least let me continue to be a king. You can keep the stuff, but at least give me the people back. (laughs) Because what's a king without people? But Abram said to king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord. Now look at this. He learned something from Melchizedek. He borrows a phrase and he makes it his because he goes, oh, that's good. I like that. You know what we call that? Church. (laughs) Small groups. Because stuff you hear from me, stuff you hear from each other, you go, oh, that's good. I needed to hear that had helped me out. And that's what Abraham experiences right here. He says, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Oh, I like that. I like what Melchizedek said. I'm going to use that. I'm going to start quoting that. That I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. (laughs) Dude, don't even give me a sneaker or a shoelace. I'm not going to let you say that you made me wealthy. Take it all. This is the baddest dude in the land doing this. Just think if, if governments work that way today. <laughs> we think something's wrong with those people. What's going on? We would take notice, wouldn't we? If people acted like that, we'd go, something's different about them. Do people say that about us? Do people stand up and take notice and go, <laughs> those people are nuts. They give away money. They give it away. I mean, they get some and they keep giving it away. What is wrong with those people? And let me just personally applaud you all because we are giving away money at an incredibly awesome clip as a church. And we plan to continue that. We plan to continue doing that. We give away 10% of what we take in every week. And we support missionaries and ministries all over the world, all over the U.S. Because of your generosity, because you realize, just like Abram realized, that God's blessed me and I get to bless others. I get to give 10% and keep 90. And you get to go home and you get to go, man, what a good deal. God who gave me Jesus, like we read in Hebrews, The high priest that lives forever. The high priest who gave himself for my sin. He gave everything to me. And all I got to give back is 10%. Wow. And you know what's crazy? Some of y'all are going to get even weirder. And you're going to go, you know what? 10% is not good enough. Because I've been blessed and I want to give more. Because I don't want my head to go. and think I'm big stuff. I want to remember that it is God who is big stuff. Blessing and using me. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this 
interesting story. Thank you, Father, that uh, you have blessed us in so many ways. And when we fail to see how we've been blessed, would you just tap us on the shoulder and maybe whisper in ear and say, hey, count your blessings. You're breathing. You got up this morning. You have food. You have heat. You have running water. You had a car that got you here. Or feet that carried you. You have health. Lord, help us to be mindful that those are things that are not a result of how amazing we are, but of how amazing you are. And may we be generous people. May that mark your people. May it be a genetic marker that traces us all the way back to Abram, our father in the faith that we give because it's not ours. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you, recognizing how blessed you are, be generous. Be a blessing like Father Abraham was. Amen.